Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Tim Ferguson. Tim is the director and co-owner of High Adventure Outdoor Education Centre, an outdoor activities provider based in West Yorkshire. Uh, Tim, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure, Tim, welcoming you onto the airwaves alongside me. Um, The reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But rather than diving straight into that, I feel it's appropriate that we approach it from the COVID-19 angle first, because it has proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life, this pandemic. But for yourselves working within outdoor education, to what extent has it affected you? Uh, Gosh, uh, where to begin, really? Um... For, for myself uh, and, and my company and also pretty much everyone within the outdoor industry, it, it's been an absolute utter nightmare. Um, it's devastating. We, the whole industry has been forced to close ever since March and we are still basically not allowed to open. Uh, and matters are made worse by the fact that it looks like we, we still can't open before September 2021 um, at the best. Um, and the worst part of the whole situation we find ourselves in is that uh, it's they're not even knowing you know if 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 this government had some gave us some clarity um with a date or something then we would be able to financially plan uh much much better Uh, and we're not able to do that because the government are basically well destroying our lives it's difficult isn't it when you can't plan for the future when there is so much uncertainty and you are essentially stuck in a rut there's nothing you can do to be proactive you're having to be constantly reactive but there's no way that you can actually open the business and get started again um so you say of course this is likely to um, occur um, until september 2021 and providing the business is still around then um that's not going to be the end of the woes is it because even when hopefully fingers crossed there is a vaccine for covid-19 and the virus is no longer a present danger just because of the anxiety that will be caused as a result of this and the impact it will have on consumer confidence it's going to take a, quite a while for people to venture outside again and be doing things like outdoor activities with other people around even when it is safe well yeah you, you, unfortunately you you're probably quite right i mean we we are very hopeful uh, we always have been very positive people. I think anyone in the outdoor industry, anyone connected with sport tends to be of that mindset. So we hope that as and when things change, as and when the world changes and we're allowed to kind of do things, uh, we'll all see a, a, a swifter return to sort of normal operating procedures with our groups and our school kids coming to us. But yeah, the, the likelihood is that there's going to be some some rockier times ahead even when we're allowed to be open. Um, it's hard to predict that, minute, but to be honest, at the moment, the least of our worries is, is worrying about when we're allowed to be open um, and what sort of groups we will or won't have coming to us. Our biggest concern is just at the minute, just not being allowed to be open by a government that currently 
uh, is destroying our industry. So we, we're not actually focusing on, say, September uh, 2021. We're focusing on the next two, three, four, five months to help, help, help and try to survive. Mm. And as you're sort of grappling to survive during this period of crisis management, if we call it that, is there anything that all of this is actually teaching you about not just yourself as a leader, but also the people around you, the industry and how that's holding up over through all of this? Uh, I guess it's 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 showing us some things uh, we may not have been aware of before. So um, you know we've got members of our staff, and I'm, I'm seeing it with other in, other outdoor centres and what they're experiencing, where you know people are pulling together as much as they possibly can to try to get through what we can only describe as is uh, an awful ordeal. So we are seeing you know people who are going above and beyond in terms of trying to help keep companies afloat in one way or another. So the, the, the positives are there. Um, from our point of view um, as well, we, we, we've we had some extremely nice feedback from our clients who obviously aren't allowed to come to us but have emailed us and have been constantly in touch saying, we want to come, we want to come. If, if the government let us come, we will be coming. And and so it's been nice to get those sort of messages and that kind of feedback as well. But it's, it's, a, it's a small sort of consolation if you if you like, for what we actually happen to go through at the moment. And obviously thinking about um, people's mental health during this time, how has that been holding up at your organisation? Because I can imagine it's been sort of quite difficult to offer reassurances to people when the business can't actually open up and fulfil its functions. Uh, that's a, that's, that's a, a good question. and it, It's a very personal one. I think um, mental health is very much about individuals. Some of us are fortunate and, and just don't suffer and are quite robust in sort of from that point of view. And other people, sadly, um, are much you know it, it, it sort of it affects them more. So it, it's it's a hit and miss thing. So I am aware that we've got members of our staff that are really struggling. Uh, equally, I've got other members of staff that actually are been absolutely fine from from the sort of isolation side of things, from the fact that they're not be able to come to work. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's very much on a sort of a case by case basis. So if I say talk about myself, which is easy to talk about me, personally, I'm fine. Um, I've got a good family. Um, I'm able to go and do stuff. Well, we are. We're in North Yorkshire. So mm. we're tier, currently tier one sort of area. You don't actually feel like COVID is really affecting you in, in, in that kind of way that I can see on the TV. It's affecting others. I'm not a pub goer. It's not really, really inconvenient in my personal life. Obviously, it's having a massive effect on my business life. So, for me, it's fine. But, but obviously, the stress and the stress side of things from running a business is different, or trying to keep a business afloat, and not going under. But then I know the members staff that, that you know they're not they want to go to work. They are struggling from a mental point of view, and, and so yeah, it's a very very hit and miss thing. Um, sadly. And while the business is closed, um, how has it been sort of trying to keep connected with everybody? Has that been something that you've been pursuing via remote means during this time? Yes, and, and that's a strange one because we know lots of I know lots of people personally who are involved in different companies, whether they are an employee or the employer or the boss. Uh, and, and, and I know quite a lot of people have said, you know what, COVID, all right, it's a nasty, it's a nasty thing, it's a nightmare, but... They, they're saying that they can see that in the future when COVID disappears, their business and their company formation will have a different sort of way of working where it'd be much more based around, say, video conferencing calls, a bit more work from home, what have you. 
from our point of view, I would say it's actually been very difficult. Um, it's demonstrated to us that actually, yes, you can have some savings by not driving to and from work and by being on a conference call or whatever, but most of the time, I think that the communication that we need very much needs to be face-to-face. Uh, and so it's been difficult. Uh, and, you know, merry-go-round sort of scenarios occurred. Uh, you don't get things solved quickly because you've got to go and bounce back between so many different people. So from our point of view, it wouldn't be something that we would move ahead with in the future is a sort of a more home-based working point of view. And that's the, the office side of things where, you know, you know, we, we could all be on a phone or on a computer. Um, so it's, it's, it's good. It's good for us that we found out that it's not something that would work. Mm. Uh, but equally, I know other companies where I think it's going to be very good for them. They've, they've discovered that they can they can go go forward in a better way in terms of how they work. Exactly right. And it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach in every single industry, especially in the context of what you do. You are absolutely right. But during this time, it is important to try and keep connected and alleviate the social isolation elements of lockdown. But sometimes there is no replica for that face-to-face human contact that isn't always possible at the moment. And that certainly is something that we have taken for granted at the moment. Um, it is. And, mm. and, and sorry, sorry, certainly as well. I mean, as much as it's not been ideal for us, it's not something that we would necessarily take forward with us in terms of the use of technology to keep communication lines open. Mm. It's been a lot better than not having it at all. So you know, I can't imagine what it could have been like, say, this sort of experience in the 1970s or 80s where the technology to communicate with people wasn't very good or, or didn't exist to, to the extent it does now. So it has been massively positive, I would suggest, for, for most businesses. Certainly it's helped us, but it's not something we would move forward with. Mm, I can certainly understand where you're coming from from that point of view. Now, uh, just addressing leadership in a little bit more of a broader sense, um, considering that you've been involved um, with, um, of course, High Adventure pretty much since the uh, the beginning in the early 2000s, um, I'd be interested to understand what some of the inspirations and influences were behind the foundation of the business and indeed your own influences as you've gone through your own career, Tim, because um, I'm writing saying it was originally set up by um, a group of ex-teachers, wasn't it, the business, who wanted a little bit more than the sector was offering at that point in time? Yeah, we, we, we were originally started, we originally started, it was 20 years ago now, by four of us that are uh, XP teachers. Um, and it's a funny question as leadership because we come from a PE teaching background. Uh, there are only two of us that remain running the company now. Um, but we never had formal leadership training. Uh, we've, we've never, we, 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 we didn't leave jobs where we were in leadership roles um, in our jobs. We were sort of the lowest of the low in terms of PE teachers. Um, and then we, 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 we set up a business and we didn't set up a business because we wanted to be leaders. We didn't set a business because we wanted to be millionaires. We set a business because we had a passion for what we, we like and do, which is teaching outdoor education to children. Um, so from a leadership point of view, we've made it up as we've gone along to an extent. But um, from my point of view, I, I can clearly see that everything I've ever done in terms of how I would lead has been drawn upon uh, 50 years on this planet of being involved in sport where I had every role going in sports, team sports and individual sports in terms of um, coaching, running, being a team member, running sessions, being captain and so on. And and, and I think sport personally uh, teaches in a, a, a vast amount of lessons to everyone, regardless of whether you are good or bad at sport, in terms of how to actually go through other um, facets of life. 
Yeah, certainly. You can certainly take different elements of leadership from sport and sort of apply that to a business career. Absolutely right. And it is very interesting um, how sort of it's all come about um, as a result um, of that, certainly. So now with regards to the uh, the future, Tim, just because I am conscious um, that we are beginning to run out of time on the uh, the show today, we know that over the course of the next 12 months, it's going to be a very difficult time, particularly within your industry with not being able to operate at the moment. But um, all going well, where do you see yourselves being in 12 months time hopefully i would imagine open again well, yeah well I, I hope so i mean if we can't open september we're going to go under in fact if we don't get some kind of clarification really imminently we'll we'll have gone under before then so it's a tricky one uh if i was a gambling man i don't i don't know to be honest scott i really don't know i hope we will still be existing as a company but in order for that to happen, uh, we need a government that's supportive. And right now, we haven't got that. Uh, we've got a, gun, a government that has forced us to be short and yet isn't helping us financially, uh, which sort of feels a bit illegal to me, but that's, that's another story. So, yeah, I, I hope that we will be allowed to open our doors um, in September, but um, it's, it's in the hands of the government. It is certainly, and we need to project the voices from your industry as far and wide as we can here as well, because it is so, so important that the sector survives. It has a lot of value and it isn't getting the support that it merits at the moment. And so we need to make sure that that is something that does happen. And I found it very interesting what you mentioned earlier as well, Tim, that it's like very much going back to basics during a time like this. It's very much shown that so much of running a business is trial and error. And so many businesses have had to go back to basics during this time. And overhaul everything, find new revenue streams, try and find ways to survive. And to the larger um, part of that, it is going quite well for some businesses that are allowed to open, but for the others that aren't, like yourselves, it's not always the same. And so there needs to be far, far more targeted support. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, There really does. Um, It's it's a very unfair system. We've got an awful haves and have-nots under COVID where most people, from what I can see, are actually better off. But very specific groups or very specific industries are getting absolutely hammered. Uh, and without help from the government, uh, they're all going to, well, not just suffering, they're all going to go under. It's a very difficult time for the industry indeed. And let us really, really hope that it does get the support it deserves. And actually, Tim, just given how important this is and how many variables there still are in this whole situation, I actually think it would be wonderful at some point to catch up and have you back on the show with us in the next year, just to see whether that support is indeed being provided and we can reassess what sort of situation the sector has found itself in by then. Well, if that's possible, then that would be brilliant because if that's it happens that means that we're still here <laughs> so uh, we'd definitely take that uh, take that offer up scott i'd certainly hope that that would be the uh, the case as well tim and um, hopefully there will be some more positive news to share by that point in time as well um for now it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the program to share some of your candid viewpoints and most importantly please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on tim because there's still a great many variables in the way that this can go as i've said but let's just keep our fingers crossed that we're not going to be stuck in this rut for too much longer thank you scott thank you very much for having us 
I'd also reiterate that message there to every single one of our listeners tuning into today's podcast. Do please continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Tim Ferguson, director and co-owner at High Adventure Outdoor Education Centre in Yorkshire onto today's programme to discuss some of the trials and tribulations of the outdoor education sector at present. Um, coming up next on the show today, we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During a distinguished professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But of course, he remains most well known for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. That came after a famous treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany, back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. Sir Jeff will be looking back upon some of the highlights of his career and discussing the importance of robust leadership throughout as well as leaving a message of thanks and support to our wonderful NHS. That will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I wouldn't want to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I will be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is is. Uh, wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? 
Yes, I think people. Um, I've I said I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in in the game was the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, ten yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand, into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it, and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, uh, making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got, you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you 
what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. The managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alfred Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. 
And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close together. It's a cul-de-sac, not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always your three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balls with gliders and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually... But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. 
And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Lyons. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house uh, somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football, it's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell him to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. One game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about, but between the two, I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, finally. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season 
around, I think, September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, uh, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, We're along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was very surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see myself. I was, I was a very disciplined, 
a person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just still uh, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I made very little contribution to that success the club had so um, yes it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the, 
that kind of uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend, and, and I always joke say you. You only start being called a legend when you're over seventy, and I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me. When I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up, so I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really. I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss you're moving them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person. Didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.